From the Wheeler Centre, you're listening to the Fifth Estate Podcast. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, 2016, and this episode is called A Larger Australia. Our host, Sally Warhaft, revisits that long-running question in Australian politics, is bigger better? What are some of the ways in which Australia can make the most of its place in the world? Joining her is our guest, Michael Fullilove. Who's the executive director of the Lowy Institute for International Policy. He's also uh, an acclaimed author of uh, several books, countless papers, um, and uh, has given the most recent Boyer lectures. And uh, the the book of his Boyer lectures is on sale, and you can buy it uh, at the end of this uh, discussion. And uh, I um, strongly recommend it. Uh, Michael's worked uh, previously as a visiting fellow at the Bookings Institution in Washington. He was an advisor to Paul Keating. He was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University with a Master's and a PhD. Uh, and, uh, well, he's just one of, the, one of the real thinkers that we have in this country. Uh, in, of course, an election year in Australia and in the United States. Uh, and the Fifth Estate series will be... We'll be doing lots of events throughout the year on the election, unless, of course, you know, they call one for May or something. We'll have to replan things. But uh, uh, it will, of course, dominate the the national conversation until there is an election. And it's a real pleasure tonight. We we try and do something every year with the Lowy Institute uh, to have the executive director as our special guest. So give him a warm welcome. Thank you. I want to start, Michael, uh, with the world. And uh, you were a guest here in 2013, which was also an election year, and uh, Julia Gillard was Prime Minister, uh, which (laughs) it's just remarkable, isn't it? It Are we on to our fourth since then? Uh, And uh, I asked you um, uh, that night about uh, the state of the world. What, What were the things that were playing into... Uh, you know, the, the, the state of the world and therefore into Australia. And we talked about a, a, a real tension between uh, this great optimism of economic prosperity, China, uh, but uncertainty, real uncertainty about also uh, the, what nation states were up to. Mm. Um, but that was, that was the general tone. Mm. How have things changed since Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Sally, and thank you to the Wheeler Centre, and thank you, everybody, for coming out on a beautiful Melbourne night for a conversation. Um, Look, things are much worse. Um, Things are much less optimistic, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I know that the PM says that there's never been a finer time in human history to be be alive, but um, in the last three years since I was on this stage in 2013... Um, the Middle East state system has really come apart at the seams and it's close to collapse. Um, You have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people killed in the Middle East, um, millions displaced. You have uh, four civil wars in the Middle East. You have a liberal international order that is becoming less liberal, less international and less orderly. You have a West, and Australia is part of the global West, but you have a West that is drooping in confidence. You have 
aggressive challenges to the West um, in the form of Russia and China, Iran, in terms of non-state challenges, Islamic State. Um, there's, of course, still grounds for optimism here and there. And for example, the, the results of the Paris climate change talks, I think, were much more uh, encouraging than the Copenhagen talks a few years before we, we chatted. But it's hard not to look out on the world with a very um, dark lens, because there are lots of reasons to be gloomy. Sorry about that, uh, yeah, Sally. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you, you make it very clear in the lectures too, and it's not really, you're a pretty optimistic kind <laughs> of a guy, I, um, and yet you write things uh, like there's an Old Testament quality to this moment with its war, plague, flood, fire and exodus. Uh, there is a growing sense that we are present at the destruction, the destruction of a world order that has served Australia's interests well. And a great quote from Claudius in Hamlet, when sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. Um, it is quite a remarkable uh, change. Now, that's at the global level. Yes. I think, I think if you come closer to our part of the world, the record is more mixed and there's room for optimism as well as pessimism. There is, uh, I mean, there is this sense that wealth and power are moving eastwards towards us. And the more the Middle East comes apart, the more you f one feels optimistic about some of the positive things that one sees in Asia, in China and in India, for example. And there are, indeed, there are great opportunities. There are exhilarating opportunities for a country like Australia. And it's terrific to look at a country like China, for example, and see that they have pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. So in our region, there are, there's more room for optimism. But at the same time, the, that cause for economic optimism is accompanied by tensions, security tensions that are growing and that don't look like they'll fade because they're to do with the underlying structures of power in our part of the world. And I, I, I write in the book that the what we used to complain about, the tyranny of distance, has been replaced by the predicament of proximity. We are more proximate to the centre of the world. We are closer to the action for good and for ill. We are closer to the deals, but we're also closer to the conflicts. We're less isolated from the world, but we're less insulated. So I, would, I think of it in those two levels. At a global level, it's, it's really... Uh, there, it's really challenging. At a regional level, it's, it's much more complicated and it's much more balanced. There's, there's reasons to be optimistic, but also reasons to be alert, I think. Not alarm, but alert. One of the things you say is in the you know, Middle East, we worry about weak states. Mm -hmm. But in Asia, uh, we worry about strong states uh, as well, particularly when there are uh, military and territorial aspirations and, and so on. Um, tell us about, uh, you, you gave your first Boyer lecture mm -hmm. in Beijing, which had never been even thought of mm -hmm. uh, before, and a really interesting thing to, to do. Tell us a bit about what it was like and how it was received. Well, the ABC asked me to give the Boyer lectures on Australia's place in the world, and I thought that if you were doing those lectures on that topic, then it made sense to take one of the lectures offshore and to see what Australia looked from another part of, like from another part of the world. And I was um, interested to find it was the first time 
that a Boyer lecture had ever been given offshore. So, um, so we we got agreement on that, and then I had to decide, I guess, where do you where do you give the speech? And I had some American friends tell me, you know, this should be in Washington or it should be in New Delhi, and you can't give this speech in China because that sends that sends signals. Um, and I said, look, relax. I'm a think tank director. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I don't think people should be too worried about it. But in a sense, I did want to send a signal. And the signal I wanted to send is that the country that is changing our world more faster and, and more permanently than any other is China. And that's not to say that one should go to China and kowtow and agree with their view of the world. But just to say that this is the country that is changing our circumstances. This is the country we need to get our head around. This is the country we need to grapple with. So we, we uh, so a Peking University agreed to host the, the lecture. It was actually um, in a famous room. I think it's, the, it's either the sunlight room or the moonlight room. <laughs> but I remember it was the room where Kevin Rudd gave his famous um, lecture. It would be the moonlight. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a little bit of nervousness from the embassy when they realised that that, that, the the latest big lecture from a visiting Australian was in the same room where Mr Rudd had given that that speech in Mandarin. Um, But it it it, it was a great event. The Chinese were, I think, genuinely flattered and excited that the first boy lecture was given in China. They were slightly discombobulated by the the content of the lecture. I think most people who go to China will just give a lecture about how great China is and how we love everything they're doing. And although I didn't give a a, um, a China bashing lecture, I wanted to give a straight lecture. I wanted to talk to them about the positives in their behaviour as well as other things that they need to think about. So. There were, a, there were a couple of confused people afterwards, I, m- I must say, who came up and uh, Chinese Communist Party officials who asked me complicated questions. What did I mean when, mm. I, when I said that and, and so on? But in general, it was a very positive event with a really good feeling in the room. And I felt, I felt fantastic about the decision to take it to China. Mm. And the word boya in is it in Mandarin means something fabulous as well? It that... means something like elegant and um, persuasive and articulate. Yeah, and yeah. So. it was uh, terrific. Um, well, um, that was an enjoyable story, but uh, we'll go back to the world is basically terrifying <laughs> and Australia is uh, small, basically. It is, is the argument in these lectures is that we need to be larger in, in, in pretty much every way, a larger politics, a larger debate about who we are, what we should be, a larger foreign policy and a larger tool chest. Um, what, what is it, broadly to start, in, in our political culture mm. that is making us small? or smaller than we ought to be? Well, I'd separate... I mean, there's... there's perhaps I can come at it in two ways. There's, there's, a, there's a historical tendency of Australians to talk ourselves down. And that, I think, has existed throughout, throughout the decades. And that's where you get this, this awful cliche that Australia is punching above its weight. You know, we're punching above its weight because we're, we're doing something in the world. Whereas, in fact... We should, be, we should have a relaxed self-confidence. We should be aware of the fact that we're a rich country. We have a large economy. We do lots of things well. Um, 
and and I don't know the root, the full, full, you know, fully the roots of that. There's a, Australians always seem to me, we always seem to have a mix of swagger, but at the same time, some some self doubt. Um, I mean, I personally think that uh, that we will have. I look forward to the moment when we have the confidence and the self belief, for example, to think that that we can fill every office under our own constitution, that we don't need to look elsewhere for inspiration, let alone to the House of Windsor. That's just one little example where, to me, Australians seem to have this hang-up. Then there's a separate phenomenon in the last decade where our politics before our eyes has shrunk. And maybe that's what you're getting mm. to with the question. And that's... It's really hard to know exactly why that's happened because... Between 1983 and 2007, you had a quarter of a century of stable and effective government. And I don't mean by that, that that everything was constant in that period or that everything the Hawke and Keating governments did, there was a consensus with, it was very similar to what the Howard governments did. They had their own agenda and so on. But you had a sense that politics, um, that we had our mojo and politics... Uh, politicians and prime ministers were able to win and hold the confidence of the public. They were able to come up with agendas, to prosecute the agendas, to win re-election, to make reforms and to make us a stronger country. And then something in 2007 changed. And since then, in the last nine years, I think I was calculating it on the way on the way down because the numbers change every time, unfortunately, because there's so much churn every time you check the numbers, they've changed. But I think it's true that in the last nine years, we've had five foreign ministers, um, six prime ministers and seven defence ministers. Um, and you've just had a series of, of politicians and governments that have been unable, they just have not had the wherewithal to to produce, to create stability in government and therefore to be able to to have the kind of healthy political culture and the reforming mindset that we need. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I know that we need to get over it. I know we need a prime minister who, who, who manages to put together an, together an agenda to convince his or her party room of it and the public of it and to get on and do things because this, this constant focus um, on ourselves, this inability to get our act together and come up with a governing agenda is damaging us as a country. We used to be looked at as a very stable example of Western democracy. Mm. How do you think we're looked on now by the world? I think it's a curi I think we're regarded as a curious spectacle. I mean, every time there's a leadership change, I get I get sort of polite, uh, confused emails from people overseas. Um, and, yeah, they, 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 they can't work it out in a way. And it, it's not just that... I mean, it's not just that the perception is created that we're like this sort of uh, Italy in the Pacific, although actually Italy has been much more, much more stable than Australia has in recent years. But it's also that, that it interrupts the work of government because um, ministers are not in the job long enough to to develop the kind of relationships that they need to do their work. They're not in office long enough to fully understand the issues and to develop long-term initiatives. Um, their momentum is constantly being interrupted. Um, and so 
therefore, they're, 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 and their minds are always on internal issues and they're not on what we pay them to be on, which is uh, solving problems. I mean, ultimately, that's why we elect politicians, to solve problems for us. And if you're constantly worried about your own job, you're not solving problems. So I think it's, an, it's a problem. It's a problem for the national interest. Well, the answer really, uh, since time began, to the question of who it could be that could solve our great problems was always Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, now he has his chance, but it is very rapidly looking as complicated for him as it has for uh, his, his predecessors in, in that office, um, which tells us a lot about the instability mm beyond leadership mm. um, and you're somebody who believes in great leadership mm-hmm. that, that it's it's actually people in the room in really important meetings who change things uh, how do you think Malcolm Turnbull is tracking um, in in terms of his sense of of Australia's relationship to the world and these problems um, and this landscape that you describe? Mm. Well, to me, I think there's been a welcome change of tone in terms of our foreign policy since Mr Turnbull was elected Prime Minister. I don't say that everything that Mr Abbott did was bad because I think actually he did some good things. I think that his, the way he conducted himself after the downing of MH17, for example, um, his focus on a big defence budget, um, there are other things that I can that I can think of that I think that he did well, but but I do think that Mr. Turnbull sees the world in a in a broader spectrum of colours. It's less monochromatic. Um, he it's it's um, it's a bit less ideological than Mr. Abbott's worldview. So I think I think the starting position is something I feel comfortable with, and I think most foreign policy professionals were impressed by that. Um, I think it's true to say that he hasn't filled in um, he hasn't filled in all the shapes yet, and we're we're waiting still, I think, for the um, the definitive statement on Malcolm Turnbull's view of Australia's place in the world. Um, he gave a speech in Washington that was a an pretty orthodox speech about the U.S. alliance. Um, the defence white paper. Uh, I think sent a lot of good signals, but we're waiting for that definitive statement. Luckily, he's giving the Lowy lecture, Sally, on the 23rd <laughs> of March, and is, and yeah. um, and I th- mm. I think we'll look forward to it then. But yeah, I think it's 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 obviously the case that that like his predecessors, he he hasn't he hasn't yet hit his stride on on in particular on a lot of these domestic issues. And how he goes, I think, will will tell us a lot about um, what it is in Australia that's broken. You know, it will tell us why it was... It will help explain why it was that his predecessors failed. Was it because of their frailties as leaders? Or, much more scarily, is there really something broken in our system, that even somebody with Mr. Turnbull's gifts, who has such a great start to the role when there was such a, a sort of a, a, a positive feeling and a sense of relief when he took over the job, if he can't get it together, then there really probably is something profoundly wrong with our system. But but let's see. I mean, he's, he's 
you know, he's got six months or so to the election. Let's see how he does. What about the, uh, the foreign policies as they stand at the moment mm -hmm. with, with each of the parties? What are the important, uh, well, the important, really important continuities that we wouldn't know about mm -hmm. um, and differences in emphasis as, as they stand at the moment? Look, I think there are a lot more continuities than differences. Um, I don't think that Mr. Shorten has made foreign policy a major focus. Uh, he, I mean, he said some, some, some good things, for example, uh, at a speech to us just before the Paris Climate Conference, for example. I think that Tanya Plibersek has done a good job as shadow foreign minister. It's a tough job because she's shadowing perhaps the government's most successful minister. But perhaps as a result of that, there aren't that many differences. I mean, I saw uh, Ms. Plibersek open some, some space between the government and the opposition recently on East Timor, for example, on the maritime boundaries. But the really interesting thing is the, the, the real foreign policy debate in Australia this year is not taking place between the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition. It's taking place between the current Prime Minister and the former mm. Prime Minister. Mm. That's the really interesting the thing. the same party. Yeah, mm. that, that, that's where the battle lines are being drawn and they're being drawn between a current Prime Minister who presents a pragmatic, pretty multilateral, pretty orthodox foreign policy um, versus the former Prime Minister and some of, his, some of the people who are close to him, like Mr Andrews, who are presenting a, a more black and white, muscular, anglospheric foreign policy. You saw Mr Abbott give a speech in Japan just a couple of days ago, for example, where he was talking about differences in values between Australia and China compared to mm -hmm. Australia and Japan. So, so those are the, the, the most striking contrasts, actually, are not between Shorten and Turnbull, they're between Abbott and Turnbull. And, I mean, in some ways, Tony Abbott seems more confident uh, of his argument than Malcolm Turnbull perhaps does of his. I, I, I would never mark Malcolm Turnbull down for lack of confidence myself. Um, I, I think he's pretty confident. I think, I mean, the defence white paper itself is a pretty strong statement of, of where his mind is and... You know, you can look at all the, 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 the announcements about particular ships and, and, and vehicles and platforms and, and expenditure and so on, but, but beneath it is a message that we are looking at a bracing world and in that circumstance we have to prioritise defence, we have to send a signal to the region that we are a player we, we want to contribute to the setting of prices, not just the taking of prices. We, we, um, we believe in a rules-based order in Asia and we're prepared to play a role in enforcing it. So that's a, it's actually, it was a lot of confidence actually, in a way, expressed in, in, in that defence white paper. Um, so, and so, a, full, a fully funded one. It was unusual, wasn't it? It, 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 it seems like it will actually happen. What, what interests me about that white mm. paper is that you've got both sides uh, agreeing on it. Um, both parties want that 2% yep. target. Um, and 
this one big, incredibly important area of agreement, which actually offers a great opening to talk about our nation and our role in the mm -hmm. world for both short and Ann Turnbull and anyone else who cares to join in, mm. is not really being... Nobody's explaining it. A lot of Australians don't understand mm. why you have to spend that many yep. billion dollars on, on submarines and uh, so yep. on. Um, what, why is that part of the problem? Because there's agreement, it's just not talked about. I think it is because I think there's, in a sense, it's almost like a false consensus. And the reason is that I think the sort of the policy hardheads um, in, on both sides realise that the world is changing and we need to change along with it. Um, but then oppositions often find it easier to to simply go along with statements like this to show that they're strong on defence. But whether they, whether they are really signing up to, the, to that expenditure ad infinitum is another question. Mm. Um, you're right that in one sense the defence white paper is fully funded, but it relies on, you know, the next 10 governments continuing to re-up on this and to say budget after budget, Yes, we're still signed up to this view of the world and this view that it's important for us to have this kind of expenditure and we're going to do that at the expense of other things, whether it's health or education or, or welfare or other questions. And in government, of course, it can be very tempting to, to move away from that path. And we saw that when Labor was in power. I mean, Labor, signed, Labor delivered in 2009 an extremely muscular defence white paper, actually stronger in its rhetoric than the white paper that was just delivered a couple of weeks ago. And yet, Labor in power also um, cut defence expenditure, deferred military acquisitions, and cut expenditure till it was at the lowest level as a proportion of GDP since 1939. So I don't think that, that the defence wonks um, and the security specialists at the Lowy Institute and elsewhere can rest on their laurels now and think, Oh great! The defence white paper has been delivered, so we've got rivers of gold for the next until 2035. I think you're right that you have to expand it beyond a false consensus. You have to, you have to make the argument. You have to continue making the argument. There's no reason why defence or foreign policy expenditure is 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 sacred. It is something that that the public has to buy into. The public has to discuss. And we have to keep making the argument why it's important to be, uh, to have a, a strong defence presence, to have a wide diplomatic network, to be on the front foot internationally, why that's important to our country. And if you don't do that, I think then, then governments can make easy excuses. I think when Labor cut back defence expenditure, nobody really believed they did that because they were starting to feel much more comfortable about the world. It wasn't that. It was just that they were in a political bind and that was the easiest area for them to cut. So it's incumbent on those who believe in, a, in Australia having a large presence to keep making the argument and explaining why. Mm. What about our soft power? How's that going? Well... Um, it, you know, one of the things that the Institute has pushed for a long time is our, is our diplomatic network. And, and, and embassies are often are a conduit. They're, they're kind of instruments of, of soft power. You know, if you like, the military is like the, 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 the muscle mass and the, the diplomatic network is like the nerve endings, if you like. Um, 
And that's an area where there has been a bipartisan failure. Um, in, in, in the post 9-11 period, the budgets of every international agency in Canberra increased except DFAT. And DFAT basically flatlined. And um, Australia, as I say in, in the lectures, has, this, has the smallest diplomatic network in the G20 and one of the smallest in the OECD, one of the smallest in the whole developed world. And this is, this is a real problem, especially because diplomacy, you know, in international affairs, talk is cheap, mm, Sally. Mm. Embassies are actually relatively cheap compared to military expenditure and other areas of expenditure. And this is one area that's, that's a real shame that we have, we have to some, we've, we've drawn down on this incredible cadre of representatives and diplomats that we once had out there representing us, trying to grasp the opportunities as well as identify and mitigate the risks because you have to do both things. It's not about being negative. It's about seeing where there are opportunities for Australia to do well, but also being very clear-eyed about the challenges. And this is one area where I give some props to Julie Bishop. She announced, I think it was last year, the first um, expansion of our diplomatic network for years. She, it was a small expansion. I think it was four or five posts, but it was a step in the right direction. But I would like to see, I'd like to see more of that. I also talk about in the lectures the idea of establishing Australia centres in um, key Asian capitals, where in addition to having a strong diplomatic network, I think it makes sense to have cultural institutes, a bit like the British Council, where that can be hubs in some of these, in some of these um, growing capitals, these dynamic areas that can, can be places where we teach English, but also where we, where we have links to our education uh, providers, where we talk about all the great cultural products that, the, that, that, that Australia produces. So I'd like to see, I mean, you've, yeah, you've got to have a clear-eyed, tough-minded approach to the world in a way, but at the same time, you need to be trying to win friends. You need to be trying to project the positive elements of, of our country, all the great things we do and the great ideas we produce and the great writing and music and art and all the terrific businesses, the Australian businesses that are doing great things as well. I'd like to see a country that is just more turned on and more switched on to the world in soft, terms of soft power as well as hard power. Again, it's the, the, the narratives and the storytelling that could be shaped uh, to, to, you know, talk to the people. Uh, all these opportunities are, are missed, both with difficult and sometimes frightening things, but also with important and, and occasional good things. Mm. Uh, it's quite, quite uh, remarkable. Uh, Let's, because uh, we time is going so fast. I, I, I want to ask about Donald Trump and uh, the United States. Uh, three years ago, they had the same president, so there's at least been some continuity mm -hmm. over there. Um, tell us. Uh, well, I, I'm interested. I'm sure the audience is interested too in your your opinion of what's going on over there, uh, and then what it means for, for Australia and the world. Look, these are tough times for an America file like me, aren't they? Um, John Howard too, I think. Did I actually hear him on the weekend saying, look, it should be okay because Clinton will beat him. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it was something, it was, if it wasn't that, it was 
that's how I read it. Uh, yeah. Look, I mean, for, for someone like me who thinks the US alliance is important to Australia, um, the words President Trump do give me pause somewhat. They um, make John Howard tremble. That I'm positive <laughs> about. They were the words he used. Um, yeah. but, but look, uh, you know, it's a big, broad country and the extremes in the United States are very extreme. And I think one has to hope that one has to just continue to believe in the rationality of American voters. Um, I think that... Um, I know it's a tough task, but, but, but I'm trying to do it. Um, look, I think that um, the good news is that... The good news is that on the Democratic side, you have somebody who would be probably the most qualified person to enter the White House in American history. Mm. Um, and I just... I think... I think I'm right um, that if the Donald is successful if he does well tonight, if he continues to clinch, if he clinches the Republican nomination, and that battle's not over, that in a general election, that the, the, the disparity in the candidates um, becomes obvious. Because if it doesn't, we've got a big problem. Because, and not just because Donald, Mr. Trump is a, um, you know, is a rather vulgar um, individual, but because the things he says about America run completely contrary to the things that have made America great. You well, know? the only specific policy we have so far on pretty much anything is building walls. He just wants to build walls everywhere. Uh, and, I mean, my reading of that is that he would be building a wall that, that America, if he did get elected and there is a, there's a chance of that, uh, a considerable chance, mm. Mm. Uh, that... It, it, there'd be such an insular uh, America. Is that right? Is that if a reasonable interpretation? And well, if, it if it is, mm. what what does that mean for the world? Well, it's 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 dreadful. It's it's terrifying because, of course, there are great strains of isolationism in in U.S. foreign mm. policy and. Um, you know, in the period between the First and the Second World War, America really withdrew from the world. And the truth is that Donald Trump is an isolationist. That's really what he is. When you read what he says, it's not actually completely incoherent. It's just completely terrifying. I mean, he thinks America's being ripped off. He thinks that everyone's taking advantage of the Americans, which is, I mean, these are the things that Republican leaders said in the 20s and 30s, and America was tricked into the, set, into the First World War. We were giving things away. We should be focused on, on things at home. And for allies like, uh, like Australia, what Trump says is, is disturbing because he says our allies are taking us for a ride. They're not, they're not contributing to, um, to our security in any way. We're being ripped off. They're not paying. They're not contributing to it. So, so this idea, this sort of bipartisan idea of an America that captured the world's imagination, that had, that, that had liberal values at its core, that played a big, generous role in the world, that after the Second World War helped to establish institutions like the United Nations and the Bretton Woods institutions and, and really governed in a way that was in its interest but also created a liberal order in which countries, well, countries like Australia but a lot of the world really prospered. Um, the Trump view is anathema to this. And, um, and, you know, that's why when, when people are, you know, when you often uh, encounter people who 
wish for a lesser America. And they, they, they say, we, you know, especially after the, the George W. Bush kind of extravaganza, they said, we want an America that plays a lesser role in the world. I often would say to them, just be careful mm. what you wish for. Because imagine America that built walls around itself, that tried to withdraw, that focused internally, that, um, that didn't play, didn't provide the kind of global public goods that it has for 70 years. What, to go back to your first question, in a world where um, international institutions are not solving these problems, where countries like Russia are up on their hind legs, would that be a very congenial world for a country like Australia? I don't think it would be. Mm. Um, if Hillary should win, mm. what uh, differences could we expect between uh, her and Obama? I think that Obama has had a prof almost professorial approach to foreign policy. He could be a think tank director very easily. Um, he, he, he has been... I think if there's a knock against Obama, it's that he overlearned the lessons from the Bush administration. This is a constant pattern in US presidential politics that one president overlearns the, the, the lessons from his or her predecessor. And Obama realised that, that Bush had been too unilateral, too aggressive. And so in a way, he's been too a bit too cautious and a bit too, um, too mild-mannered. And I think if you look at the Middle East, I think most Middle East experts, you certainly can't blame Obama for everything that's happening. But is it a part of the, the explanation for the horrors and the blood, bloodbath of Syria, the way America has retreated from that region? It is a part of it. So I think Hillary would... Um, Hillary gives us the best chance for an intelligent corrective to that, where she doesn't go overboard and start invading countries, uh, you know, um, for no apparent reason. But at the same time, she, she presents a sort of a tough a tough-minded approach to the world, in our part of the world as well as in the Middle East. I think, I think that's, what, that's what an optimist would hope for from a Hillary presidency. A lot of continuity and continuity in terms of personnel, but I think, I think you would see a tougher approach. And I think that countries like Beijing are already sort of factoring that in. And one of the reasons perhaps that you're seeing more forward-leaning behaviour from China, for example, in the seas around in China's near seas is that they think we have a window of opportunity here when Obama is in the White House that we may not have um, come the inauguration of the next president. Mm. Um, it's remarkable that we could be sitting here talking for 40, 45 minutes and Europe doesn't even come up. Uh, when we watch the nightly news, of course, we see um, problems all over Europe. Mm. Uh, but in terms of foreign policy and world power uh, and the, the goings-on between mm. nation-states, mm. it's not even in the discussion. Mm. What's going on there? I think that Europe has, um, Europe has been... First of all, it was occupied for a long time in, in, a, in a somewhat parochial exercise, a completely understandable one, but nevertheless parochial in the sense that it was trying to create a more perfect union internally. And then it's had a series of financial debacles. It's then had, as we're seeing in the United States, the, the victory of, of politicians on the extreme wings. Um, and 
it's now, you know, you, see, you now see a situation where its most impressive leader, Angela Merkel, is struggling to cope with the, the massive refugee flows from the Middle East. I think she's going to reverse her policy. She may well. She's certainly, she's certainly modifying it. Um, you have a situation where even the United Kingdom, which has always been the most adventurous, the most outward-looking European country, the most prepared to, to play outside of the European continent... Is, um, is increasingly occupied by um, its own internal issues, whether Scotland will stay or go and whether Britain will stay, remain in the, in the European Union or leave. And, and this is a problem for Australia because although Europe is never going to be a major player in Asia, we would like to think that as like-minded countries that um, we, with whom we, we see eye to eye, that... that that they are present in our region, that they are playing, that they have he- they're healthy countries, they're playing, they're confident, they're confident about Europe's role in the world. That's what I'd like to see. But you don't see that. You see a Europe that is, that is focused on itself, that's worried about itself, and therefore doesn't have the bandwidth to think about um, things that are happening on the other side of the world. So I, I would like to see a Europe that feels much more confident and in which you do see Europeans speaking up about things that are happening about around the world, but I think they're so set upon they, they don't have the, the time or the brain space to do it. Do you think that the West has lost some confidence, including Australia, you know, that there's just a bit of a wobbly moment in, in the West? I, I, I very much think that, um, and I think that... Of course, some of it is self-inflicted. Um, you you have to think that um, had President Bush not decided to invade and occupy an Arab country and and suck his country and many many of the rest of us into that awful exercise, you have to think that it's not the original sin, and we have to be careful not to to explain everything that's happening in the world because of Iraq. But, um, but think of the opportunity cost of Iraq. Think of the things that we could have done to strengthen ourselves and to strengthen the world if we hadn't had our head turned by that. I think that's, that's, I think that's part of it because it's undermined in a way, it's undermined our faith in our leaders, in the value of intelligence, in the in the efficacy of our of our militaries to to achieve to 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 um, carry off a successful mission. So I think Iraq is sort of part of the explanation, but it's a much bigger thing. Of course, it's it's just the you feel the the center of gravity shifting, and that's a that's a generation generational change whereby, as I said at the beginning, wealth and power are moving eastward. The, 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 the great, um, the, the countries of huge population, India and China, are starting to achieve the productivity gains, which means that this, 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 this couple of centuries where small Western countries, because they were so efficient and productive, had massive economies and therefore could, could dominate the world, that's receding a little bit. And you're, you're returning to almost a pre-industrial revolution um, um, state of affairs. So, so there's, there's big long-term trends and then there's sort of short-term bad decisions and mistakes that we've made that have probably accelerated those trends. 
Um, there's a lot of uh, common sense in what you wish for in the Boyer lectures, and 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 it's quite a long wish list. Uh, <laughs> Assuming that not all your wishes will will come true uh, uh, about Australia's place in the world and our politics and our this this wanting to be larger in in a deep way, what what um, what would you like to see happen that really could happen, you know, that really could be attained? I mean, we talk about changing political culture and, you know, it mm. sounds kind of simple, mm. but it's not. Well, I think, you know, I end by saying that... I end by saying that Australia has a choice. And the choice is, do we want to be a cramped, small country that is that is anxious about the world, that is disposed to erect barriers against it, that doubts itself, that feels we don't have a significant role to play in the world and is therefore content with a modest defence force and a diplomatic network and that looks abroad for inspiration. Do we want to be that small country or do we want to be something larger than that? Do we want to be a big, confident country that is open to the world, alive to the attractions of diversity, that, that believes that we can influence the balance of power, that has enough confidence and self-belief to believe that we can be a republic, that, one of, that, that it's not beyond our wit to um, choose from within our own ranks someone who could be our own head of state, that we're not so completely hopeless as a country that whereas everybody else manages to do this, we need to cling on to, um, to our history and we can't embrace our future. So, I mean, I could give you lots of, you say something that's attainable, I could give you lots of little policies that we could do, but to me, the, the grander thing, and I think it is attainable, is for Australians to turn their mind to that. And it's not just about politicians making that choice, although that's part of it. I do believe in, in leaders making decisions like that. But I think it's also on all of us to... to um, to really turn our mind to that and think, do we want to be this sort of this little country in the Pacific or do we think we have something off to offer to the world and actually that we make ourselves safer and more prosperous by getting out there and by trying to contribute to regional security, by, by trying to play a significant role in the world, by embracing a, um, immigration, by... Um, by uh, and by, by deciding that finally we want one of our own, we want one of us to be our head of state, I think that is attainable. And that's a decision not just for prime ministers and leaders of the opposition, but for all of us. Very interesting that you'll, you've singled out a, a, a largely symbolic issue uh, uh, as, as the one to, to talk about. Very interesting. Uh, now it is all on you, uh, not only uh, to improve the country, uh, but to ask a question of Michael, if you'd like, put your hand up. And if you uh, give him a microphone, I think we have a question down there. Two. Thank you very much for your uh, speech and, and discussion. One of the things that's concerned me is uh, the worldview in, term, in two things. Firstly, um, the lack of foreign aid that we now provide and the direction in which that's actually been 
sent. What do you think of that um, particular level of policy, if you can call it that? Did you say there was a second thing that you wanted to ask? Second about? part is that we had we we've cut our foreign aid and we put that into uh, detention, and so, like in, into into that particular crisis, if you mm. like, or that particular not crisis mm. but situation. Mm. Um, you know, what sort of messages do you think that sends, and how do you view that, please? Very two very tough issues that you've very helpfully um, put together um, to make it even more difficult for me. Um, Look, I think on aid, I think that, um, you know, you saw the big cut, I think it was in last year's budget, where it was a very significant cut to, to our aid expenditures. And I guess that cut was made because it was easy, but, but that doesn't make it smart. And aid is a cost-effective... Sally asked me earlier about soft power. Aid is a, is a cost-effective way of... It's a cost-effective instrument of our soft power. It, it enables, it, it, it does good because it contributes to development. It should, that should be its primary focus. But it gives leverage to our diplomats as well. It gives them programs that they can run. It, it gives them things that they can do in the countries in which they're posted that, that show that Australia's interested and Australia's focused on it. Now, that doesn't mean that everything was rosy in the aid um, world before those cuts at all. And there was a sense in which, and it was partly tied into the, the campaign for the Security Council seat, there was this sense in which um, we, ha we committed to extremely large increases over the long term in aid that were slightly out of whack with expenditures in other areas, for example, diplomacy. We were starving um, our diplomatic network and our diplomatic service, and yet we were throwing money, in a sense, at... at aid issues. And so there was a sense, I think, for those who watch it closely, that that things had got out of balance slightly. Um, but, of course, the government didn't really cut back on that aid in order to invest more in diplomacy. I think they really just used the, the aid as a cash box in, in a similar way, actually, to the way that Labor used the defence bu budget as a cash box when it was in government. So, so I would agree with you that um, the, the cuts seem to have been too large, and I have certainly myself been to um, countries in the last six months or so, and where I've, I've felt the effect of it, because you, you realise when you talk to Australian diplomats that they, that they had programs at their fingertips a little while ago that enabled them to make an argument um, about Australia's presence and its interest in that country, and they don't have that now. So, so I think, um, so I regret the fact that the cuts were as significant and and um, sharp as they were. In terms of de detention policy, it's such, or, or in terms of um, uh, uh, asylum seeker policy, I guess more broadly, it is such a difficult issue because. Um, I don't think you can be a sentient human being and look at our policies at the moment and feel comfortable about them or comfortable about all elements of them. You'd have to be a very cold-hearted, cold-blooded person to do that. And yet, I have also watched and watched pretty closely the, the alternative policy that was enacted under the Rudd and Gillard governments. And it's hard for me to say that that policy was better 
Uh, it's hard for me to say that with um, whatever the number was, I think it was a thousand deaths at sea. Um, it's hard to say that 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 the, that that policy was something that we should long for and something we should go back to. I don't think we can. I think I think the truth is that that a a policy that deters people from getting into leaky boats is the lesser of two evils. Now that doesn't mean that I agree with every aspect of the bipartisan consensus on on asylum seeker policy. I don't. I would be in favour of being even more generous um, when it comes to the humanitarian visas that we um, that we grant every year. I think it was good that the Abbott government agreed to um, to make available 12,000 visas for Syrian refugees. It seems to be taking too long to process those visas, um, but I'd like to see Australia be even more generous when it comes to refugees. I think that's one way that we can send a signal to the world that although we are tough-minded when it comes to border policy, that does not equate to being hard-hearted. So, you know, I feel, I feel quite conflicted when it comes to that, to, to, to border policy. I think that on balance, when you look at the way that the policy has shifted over the last decade, um, I think that, that those who argued for a tough border policy have the better of the argument when it comes to the human cost. But does that mean that kids should be in detention? No, absolutely not. Does it mean that um, we can't be more generous when it comes to humanitarian visas? I think we should be. Thank you so much to the Wheeler Centre and you guys for a fascinating talk tonight. Thank you. Um, I was a bit disappointed to begin with because I mistakenly came along to hear the guy giving the voyeur lectures, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that was my mistake. Uh, look, I'm, I'm intensely fascinated that you believe that Hillary Clinton <coughs> is uh, the best person to <coughs> solve the problems in the world now. Can you... <coughs> Can you um, talk about the Russian reset, which was Hillary's uh, rapprochement with uh, Sergei Lavrov? Uh, can you talk about Hillary's role in getting rid of Muammar Gaddafi and turning Libya essentially into a failed state? And can you talk about uh, the risk to uh, the United States and other Western countries in her use of a private email server during her tenure as the Secretary of State. Uh, I went and saw... I think now we... Because Michael is very generous in the, his expansive answers and you've given him about five things and he probably will address them all. Sorry to cut you short. I'm That's Sally's code for <coughs> Michael gives shorter answers. Uh, although I was also going to say, are you okay? Do you need another I'm minute? Because he can <coughs> keep going eloquently. It was just the idea of me giving a voyeur lecture that, <laughs> that was really... <coughs> Actually, you guys should find it more distressing than I do. <coughs> Um, <clears throat> you know what? Give him back the microphone for a minute. No, no. You all right? No, let, yeah. let, me, let me have a go. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> I don't... Um, <clears throat> politics is about choosing. In a democracy, you've got to choose between candidates. And um, I wouldn't say that Hillary Clinton was a perfect Secretary of State. She wasn't. I think, I think actually, when we look at John Kerry's <clears throat> secretaryship, 
we see someone probably that had, has more ambition and somebody who was not preparing themselves for a subsequent role. And you see that perhaps <clears throat> in retrospect, Hillary could have done more as Secretary of State. Um, <clears throat> more if she wasn't planning on making the... Yeah, I think um, she was probably, in retrospect, she was a bit cautious because she was constantly husbanding her political resources for the campaign that was coming. But um, in defence of Hillary, uh, she has, she's an extremely experienced candidate. <clears throat> she's been Secretary of State, a Senator for New York, a First Lady. She knows what government is about. Um, she has moderate policies on foreign policy, and that's why you're now seeing not just John Howard, uh, or I haven't actually seen that story, but you're seeing many conservatives in the United States come out and say that if Donald Trump <coughs> wins the nomination, they will be supporting Hillary. I mean, you see very tough-minded Republican foreign policy people saying this. Bob Kagan, for example, said it recently. Max Boot, a neocon at, at, the, at the Council on Foreign Relations, has said that he would support Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. So <clears throat> politics is about choosing. And I'm not saying Hillary Clinton is the ideal president um, or that she was the ideal secretary of state. But um, I'll tell you what, in a choice between Donald Trump, who is the front runner and is the likely Republican candidate um, at the moment, and Hillary Clinton, if I were an American, I wouldn't hesitate for a heartbeat before I voted. Was that short enough, Sally? It was. Uh, we've, we have time for one really quick, really quick question. An article recently by an author called Laura Tingle who said that she argues that uh, some of the instability in our government has been due to um, the stripping back of the public service and, and she, she argues that we've lost the institutional memory in the public service um, that has allowed us to, to make effective policy, so through a series of redundancies and such, and particularly the loss of senior public servants, that that has meant our governments have have um, been ineffective in their policy um, development and implementation. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's, it's really hard to know what is the explanation. I mean, what we can do is observe this phenomenon, this incredible churn of last year anyway, it was five prime ministers in five years. Um, you can see the similar churn in, Vic in Victoria. I think mm. Victoria's had something like four premiers in six years. You see it in my home state, in New South Wales, um, and you see it, and and you you know so so whether the the undermining or the the thinning out of the public service is the explanation. It, it's probably a contributing factor. Um, of course, lots of people always say social media is to blame. So let me let me chime in and say probably social media has something to do with it. Um, There's less crossover now, isn't there, between the public service and and the politicians? You know, the senior politicians used to be staffed out of the public service. Mm. I think Malcolm Turnbull might be the first prime minister in ages to have a, a former treasury official mm -hmm. as his chief of staff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been friends. You know, yeah. for for the last four, it's um, it, it, does that tradition waning? Uh, is that is that part of the problem as well? Look, it might be part of the problem. It might be social media. It might be that the the nature of the news media, the mainstream media, has changed. It might be the calibre of the leaders, um, <clears throat> and that's why I say that in a way, Turnbull will be will be more evidence for what the explanation 
for this problem is. Um, it's probably a mix. It, it's probably a mix of all these things. You know, would John Howard have been able to win four elections in a row now? Would Keating and How Keating and Hawke have been able to win five? We don't know what the answer to this is. But I just finish by saying. We do know that this is undermining us as a country. We know that if you can't have longevity, I mean, longevity is not everything in politics, but it's a start. It's the essential precondition. If you're only in the job for a year, then, then you've got no hope of having the imagination and the courage and the time to come up with reforms and then bed them down. So, so I don't really know what the explanation is as to why our politics have got smaller, but they've got to get larger. And I do think this is incumbent upon all of us because it's easy to point the finger at the pollies and it's even easy to point the finger at social media and the mainstream media and say, look, it's all your fault. But I have to think that, <clears throat> that we as a people have somehow lost our patience as well. It seems, it seems a shrinkingly small period of time before we get sick of prime ministers and say, what have they done for us lately? I mean, it's within a couple of months that we start to say, well, yeah, well, you know, he's not quite as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as he was three months ago, was he? And I don't think we were that impatient as a people um, 10 years ago. So I, I guess I hope that politicians, but not just politicians, I hope that we as citizens, I think that we all have to think big. We need the politicians to come up with an imaginative, encouraging, yes, even agile uh, agenda and, 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 a, a, um, and a, a convincing plan for achieving that agenda. And we need to say, all right, we are prepared to suspend our disbelief. We're prepared to believe that, that we're prepared to be taken along on this journey so that together we can do something as a country. We've all got to think big. That's all for this week. On the subject of thinking big, though, if that's the kind of thing you like to do, you'll find a lot of help at our website, where there are over 800 free discussions you can watch or listen to, thousands of great articles, and of course, more events like this one to attend. Check it all out at wheelercentre.com and join us again for the next Fifth Estate, where we'll be discussing intergenerational warfare. <laughs>